Now you talk about terror. Welcome to the Chris Hedges Report. When you defy the imperial, capitalist American state, when you denounce the crimes done to its own people, especially the poor, immigrants, and African Americans, as well as the crimes it commits abroad, when you have a global audience in the tens of millions that admires you and respects you for your courage and integrity, when you cannot be intimidated or bought off, then you are targeted for destruction. Heroic dissidents are demonized, marginalized, physically and psychologically destroyed or assassinated by the American ruling class. Before the persecution of Julian Assange, before the FBI assassination of Fred Hampton and Malcolm X, before the murder of Martin Luther King, there was the relentless campaign to silence the activist, actor, and singer Paul Robeson. Robeson was a socialist and a militant who stood with the crucified of the earth. He was fearless, confronting then-President Harry S. Truman in a face-to-face meeting in the White House and berating him for failing to halt the reign of terror and lynching that afflicted blacks. He famously filed a petition with the United Nations, charging the U.S. government with genocide against African Americans. Robeson, who had a law degree from Columbia University was multilingual. He had a global appeal that has perhaps never been matched by another black American, even by figures such as Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X. W.E.B. Du Bois called him, without doubt, the best-known American on earth. He was a stalwart member of the radical left, an active defender of trade union movements. But he was to become, in the words of Pete Seeger, the folk singer who was also persecuted in the United States, the most blacklisted performer in America. By the end, stripped of his passport, subject to relentless character assassination, denied the ability to make a living, he would end his days in 1976, a virtual recluse in his sister's home in Philadelphia. His life illustrates the lengths to which the American empire will go to destroy and silence its most powerful critics, linking the persecution of Paul Robeson directly to the persecution of Julian Assange held today in a high-security prison in London where his mental and physical health, like Robeson's at the end of his life, is in serious decline. Joining me to discuss the life of Paul Robeson is his biographer, Gerald Horn, the Moores Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. So in your book, you write that Robeson pioneered the struggle against Jim Crow throughout the 30s and 40s. It was only with Robeson's fall that King and Malcolm could emerge as they did. The undermining of Robeson created a vacuum that these two leaders filled. I wonder if you could talk about his battle against racial segregation, racial terror, and this legacy that you highlight. Well, the great Paul L. Robeson was born in central New Jersey in 1898, passes away in Philadelphia in 1976. Uh, In between, he is an all-American football player at his alma mater, Rutgers University, New Brunswick, New Jersey. He's also a stalwart on the basketball court and on the baseball diamond. As you suggested, from there, he moves on to Columbia University and seemingly is en route to a comfortable life or as comfortable as a, quote, Negro, unquote, could be uh, under the 
savage ravages of Jim Crow, but his life is diverted. His life is diverted in part because of the fact that he was friendly with another black lawyer, speaking of William Patterson, who eventually becomes a leading black member of the U.S. Communist Party. And also his life is diverted by his spouse, Eslanda Robeson, uh, who encourages him to express his artistic and cultural talent as a singer, as an actor, and he's finding it difficult, this is in the early 1920s or in the post-World War I era, uh, post-1918, to pursue that kind of career uh, in New York City where all three, Patterson and Robeson and his spouse were living. And so he decides to go into exile, like so many black Americans before or since, for example. The great James Baldwin, for example, spent a good deal of his most fertile years as an artist uh, in France and in Turkey, uh, for example. Robeson uh, decided to choose exile in London, uh, where he found things a bit more comfortable than he did in New York City. And he quickly becomes a star of stage and screen on stage as a singer and as an actor, his Othello is still considered to be the definitive performance of that Shakespearean tragedy. And as well, because of the influence of Patterson, he is encouraged and decides to move even further to the left than he had been to that point. Uh, what I mean is, that, as you suggested, Robeson was multilingual, and that allowed him, for example, to perform in Germany, since he was fluent in German, but he was performing in Germany at a time when fascism was rising, and this was perhaps the definitive episode in Robeson's life, that is to say, coming face-to-face -face with the ugliness and horrors of fascism in the 1930s, he, of course, was fluent in Russian and winds up uh, educating his only son, Paul Jr., his only child, uh, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, because he wanted him to escape the pernicious nature of Jim Crow in the United States and his homeland. And another turning point comes as well in the 1930s, indeed, when he performs on the battlefield of Spain, recall that a democratically elected government in Spain was then under siege by fascism. That is to say, the eventual victor, Francisco Franco, and his fascist supporters in Rome and Berlin. Uh, Robeson performed there, and that too was a turning point in his life. And it's fair to say that he would have likely resided in London indefinitely but for the coming of World War II in Europe by the late summer of 1939, feeling that he and his family might be trapped uh, in a war zone, uh, they all decamped back to the United States across the Atlantic. And this was a kind of propitious moment uh, because the United States was egging itself on 
towards entering the anti-fascist war. Robeson, as a result, was on the same page as his homeland and initially was lionized. He was able to perform Othello on Broadway, for example, uh, where he was applauded heartily. Although I should mention that when performing Othello in New York, he was nervous about embracing as a black person his leading lady, Desdemona, in the Shakespearean play for fear that some racist in the audience might storm the stage and slap him, for example, or worse. But in any case, uh, that uh, sort of uh, New York Spring or U.S. Spring lasted until the conclusion of World War II, 1945, uh, when the political climate shifted towards anti-communism, the new Cold War, the Red Scare, uh, Robeson was becoming a non-person as a result. Uh, he had a in infamous uh, face-to-face confrontation with the then U.S. President Harry S. Truman, with Robeson reading the Riot Act to the U.S. President because of Washington's seeming inability to do anything or lift a finger with regard to the lynching of uh, black people uh, with certain black soldiers in particular coming home from the war and being attacked in their uniform. One notorious case of Isaac Woodward in South Carolina has his eyes gouged out by racists, uh, which obviously inflames the ire of Robeson. Uh, but, but what's inflaming the ire of the White House is the fact that the Red Scare is underway and Robeson refuses to turn his back on his comrades in the U.S. Communist Party, among which, as noted, is William Patterson, uh, Ben Davis Jr., the spouse of De the eventual spouse of W.E.B. Du Bois, speaking of Shirley Graham Du Bois, and, and many others. And so Robeson finds himself on the so-called blacklist. Uh, that is to say, he finds it difficult to perform. He finds it difficult to find a venue where his records could be sold. His income plummets from the six figures to the low four figures. He becomes a kind of non-person. The All-American football squad, of which he is a member uh, decades earlier in, at Rutgers University, uh, his name is stripped afterwards during the Red Scare so that uh, there were only 10 players on that All-American football team instead of the requisite 11. And there is an attempt to drive Robeson into the ditch. In fact, there are attempts on his life, most notoriously when he gives a concert in 1949 where Pete Seeger performs, amongst others, a fundraiser for the Civil Rights Congress led by his friend, William Patterson, which is raising money so that they could file that petition at the United Nations that you mentioned, charging the United States with genocide against black people. A mob amasses they are baying for blood. They are apparently in league, not only with neo-Nazis, but with the police authorities as well. Robeson barely escapes with his body in one piece. And that is the case for a good deal of the 1950s. That is to say, attempted marginalization, attempted isolation, being hauled before congressional committees, uh, being interrogated and browbeaten as to whether or not he is a member of the U.S. Communist Party until finally uh, in the late 1950s as a result of a global campaign where, by the way, 
the leaders of independent India, uh, speaking of Prime Minister Nehru and his daughter Indira Gandhi, uh, play a leading role. Robeson's passport is returned. He speedily departs the United States of America, but he tends to overdo it in terms of his travel. He travels down under to Australia, for example, and engages in solidarity with other victims of racist persecution, speaking of the indigenous population, which are referred to as the Aboriginal population on these shores. Uh, what happens as well is that his spouse, who is also his manager, Islanda, uh, also kind of overdoes it. Uh, she passes away by 1965. Uh, Robeson by then is in a kind of decline he returns to live in West Philadelphia with his sister, where he spends his declining years, although he is in touch with many of the strugglers and fighters in the anti-Jim Crow movement, particularly the younger strugglers and fighters in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the shock troops of the anti-Jim Crow movement in Dixie, before passing away in 1976, where, interestingly enough, uh, he is celebrated in the pages of the Black Panther Party newspaper. One of the things in your, in your book that you highlight is that while living in London, he has a very close relationship with uh, anti-colonial movements and uh, many uh, future uh, leaders of independent countries in Africa. And that this is a very important part of his education, that he's he was accused, I think, at one point of uh, espousing communist or Soviet ideas, and he said, well, ever, all of my political education came in London. Yes, that's true, because London, uh, although it may be difficult to imagine today, uh, had a very strong left-wing movement, not only uh, comprised of those who had escaped colonialism, such as C.L.R. James of Trinidad and Tobago, who wrote the still worthy book, The Black Jacobins, about the Haitian Revolution, still consulted, or Jomo Kenyatta, the founder of independent Kenya, uh, who was once uh, as close to the organized left as Robeson was before deciding to make his peace uh, with London for various reasons. But in the 1930s, uh, as noted, uh, he was part of the left as well. And that's not to mention the uh, now forgotten stalwarts of the left uh, in London itself, uh, speaking of uh, Arpom Dutt, D-U-T-T, for example, whose works on fascism are still uh, worthy of consultation or uh, other leaders of that stripe. And so Robeson correctly suggested that it was in London that he received this fundamental education. And so uh, perhaps instead of... Uh, pinning Moscow on his lapel, as Congress sought to do, they should have pinned London on his lapel. I want to talk about his role in Othello. So uh, he said that playing Othello gave him a profounder understanding of white supremacy and that it was his art that helped drive him to revolutionary understanding. Performing Othello, he said, has taken away from me all kinds of fears, all sense of limitation, quite simply... It has made me free. I thought that was fascinating. I wonder if you could speak about that. Well, of course, as you recall, Othello deals with a very striking period 
in the late 1500s, early 1600s, uh, that is the time when it is written by William Shakespeare. Interestingly enough, London at that time is on the verge of surpassing Catholic Spain as the leading European power and also surpassing a Protestant Holland as well, in part because opportunistic London cuts the deal with the other major European power, uh, speaking of Ottoman Turkey, which is a leading, if not the leading Muslim power. And so in telling the story of Othello, the Moor, uh, hailing from North Africa, a predominantly uh, Muslim territory, in some ways, Shakespeare, like Othello himself, is performing a service for the state. Uh, that is to say, he's helping English and London audiences become more comfortable with Queen Elizabeth's de facto alliance uh, with Muslim powers, uh, which seem is seemingly at odds with a Christian ethos which suggested that Islam was as antagonistic to Christianity as many people centuries later thought communism was as antagonistic to capitalism. And so Othello happens to be a character who also is done in by gossip, by the fact that Iago is whispering in his ear and driving him to the depths of despair. And I think that Robeson thought that in order to perform that character of Othello, he had to understand that character psychologically. In fact, when he was playing the role on Broadway in New York, he suggested that in order to work himself up psychologically, to generate the kind of rage that audiences would find perhaps comprehensible and help them to understand what he was trying to convey as Othello, he would imagine that he was being betrayed. Of course, betrayal is a central concept of Othello, as you know. He would imagine that he was being betray betrayed by one of his uh, communist colleagues, speaking of William Patterson or Ben Davis Jr., another black leader of the Communist Party. And so I think that that quote that you mentioned also helps to expose and reveal the fundamentals of acting, uh, which many spectators tend to take for granted when they see someone on stage or at the silver screen trying to convey a character. But if you're going to convey that character adequately and move the audience emotionally, it's very important for you as the actor to understand the character emotionally and psychologically. And I think that that's what he was driving at in that quote that you referenced. I want to read another quote. He, he writes, every artist, every scientist must decide now where he stands. He has no alternative. There is no standing above the conflict on Olympian Heights. The artist must take sides. He must elect to fight for freedom or slavery. I have made my choice. I have no alternative. What was the role of the artist uh, for him? Well, the role of the artist was to inspire. The role of the artist was to convey eternal truths. 
And given his eminence, the role of the artist was to be a fundraiser, uh, which he did quite successful uh, for anti-colonial movements, for union movements. For example, he was quite close to another black communist leader, speaking of Ferdinand Smith, a founder of the National Maritime Union, Union a once powerful union uh, that had uh, control to a degree over imports and exports on vessels before he was subjected to the Red Scare and chased back to his homeland, speaking of Jamaica. And so I think that Robeson was one of the early victims of the so-called blacklist, which swept through Hollywood, which has been the subject, as you know, of many different films and, and plays and novels and memoirs and all the rest. And I think the fact that Hollywood was so deeply impacted uh, by this anti-communism, by this Red Scare, betokens and bespeaks the fact of how the rulers of the United States fundamentally were afraid of artists. They were afraid of artists like Paul Robeson because the ruling elite were aware of the kind of popularity that he held the kind of esteem in which he was held, and they were aware that he could move millions. And so it's no accident that A, Robeson is subjected to a vicious persecution, and B, artists more broadly and more widely were treated similarly. Let's talk about that persecution. So the FBI follows Robeson's every move. Uh, they mount an extensive and a and a covert campaign to destroy him, including, of course, as you mentioned, uh, his ability to make a living. I think in 1947, he's making about $104,000 a year. 1950, it's fallen to 2000 I want to speak about what they did to Robeson uh, and then talk about how they used black celebrities, figures like uh, the great baseball player Jackie Robinson, to attack Robeson uh, and uh, his supporters. Well, as you suggested, Jackie Robinson at one time, particularly in the 1940s, uh, was quite popular, uh, broadly, being depicted as the man who helped to break the color line, actually breaking the color line for the second time, uh, circa 1946. Of course, Major League Baseball, such as it was, uh, was desegregated in the late 19th century before the onset of the 1890s and the, the rise of a very vicious uh, uh, Jim Crow and, and racism. And so Jackie Robinson was importuned to come before the House Un-American Activities Committee and denounce Paul Robeson. This is in the wake of Paul Robeson uh, quite famously uh, speaking in France, uh, casting doubt on whether Black Americans would be up for a nuclear war against the former Soviet Union. Of course, uh, he doubted it, and that uh, created a firestorm of protest, which led to Jackie Robinson coming before the HUAC uh, to castigate him. Of course, subsequently, Jackie Robinson apologizes, but by then, it's a, a bit too late uh, for that kind of apology. And interestingly enough, baseball fans might recall Jackie Robinson's Brooklyn Dodgers uh, teammate, the fastballer Don Newcomb, who went further than Jackie Robinson in denouncing uh, Paul Robeson. And that, that's the way 
as a black celebrity or as a celebrity in general or as a U.S. national in general, uh, you kept your head above water uh, by denouncing Paul Robeson, uh, who was thought to be, believe it or not, the, quote, black Stalin, unquote. Uh, that is to say, there was a devious plot to somehow have Paul Robeson uh, be in league with domestic and global communists to somehow take over the United States of America. I know that some of your viewers and listeners uh, might be tittering at this point, but if so, that suggests that they do not necessarily comprehend the kind of hysteria uh, that was sweeping from the Atlantic to the Pacific at that a particular historical moment. I want to talk about the, uh, so he, he, um, uh, he, his physical, as you mentioned, and, and psychological health deteriorates under this constant uh, campaign against him. Uh, and in 1961, uh, his son finds him in the bathroom of a Moscow hotel attempting to slit his wrists. Uh, and until the death of his son, he argued that his father was a victim of the CIA chemist Sidney Gottlieb's uh, MK Ultra program, which secretly administered synthetic hallucinogenics to dissidents, uh, leaving many to have mental breakdowns or even commit suicide. And of course, one of the tactics was that after that hallucinogenic uh, uh, trauma, which is not explained to them. They don't know why they have it. Uh, they funnel them into electroshock therapy, which happened to Robeson, and they never really recover. And his son always argued that this was uh, orchestrated by uh, the CIA. And I wondered if you could address that. Well, interestingly enough, his son, Paul Robeson, writes, Paul Robeson Jr., excuse me, writes a two-volume uh, biography of his father, which is actually quite interesting, and he deals with that point. Uh, likewise, uh, at New York University, at the Tamament uh, Library, uh, at the NYU, uh, under Paul Robeson's names, Paul Robeson Jr.'s name, you can find detail and files that help to substantiate the point that Paul Robeson Jr. makes Likewise, as history proceeds, new documents arise, which is one of the reasons why many historians speak to history as argument without end, because as time passes, new documents arise. As you know, there's a 30-year rule with regard to the United States government releasing documents. And so now we can expect documents as recent as, uh, what, 1992 to be coming forth. And so you see in this new book, A White Malice, which just came out recently, uh, a very thick tone. The author takes advantage of some of these records to talk about Sidney Gottlieb and actually to talk about the CIA uh, malfeasance on the African continent with the same kind of dirty tricks that were directed against Paul Robeson, uh, also directed against uh, African leaders as well. Uh, which helps to give sustenance and credibility to the charges that Paul Robeson Jr. makes. And interestingly enough, the author of the book, White Malice, who brings out this new evidence that I was just alluding to, also suggests that recent regulations and legislation with regard to files on the Kennedy assassination, 
which, as you know, takes place in 1963, well before the 30-year rule. Now we're talking about a 60-year rule, that documents are still emerging that are shedding light on Africa, shedding light on the U.S. Red Scare. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, the current U.S. president, for various reasons, has put a hold on coming releases of documents. I, I, I take it that that hold will be lifted soon. And so uh, we can expect to receive uh, more documentation that no doubt will help to substantiate the charge that not only was Paul Robeson likely subjected to dirty tricks of the most malevolent variety, but many of his comrades, uh, there are a lot of unexplained deaths uh, in this country. As the book White Malice points out, there's this really striking coincidence of so many people committing suicide by jumping out of skyscrapers, for example. One has a very curious uh, trend. And so once again, the lesson is that historians need to keep researching. Journalists need to keep researching. Journalists and historians need to keep writing. Well, there was a whole unit set up to terrorize black artists like Billie Holiday, uh, and uh, uh, and destroy their lives. And, and uh, Billie Holiday is another example, perhaps, of that. Well, certainly. And in fact, <laughs> there was a recent movie that did not do very well at the box office, perhaps fortunately, that tries to depict the kind of dirty tricks that Billie Holiday was subjected to. But alas, uh, I think that the salacious aspects uh, tend to uh, overcome the creativity of the screenplay writer and the director. Great. We're going to stop there. Uh, That was Professor Gerald Horn on uh, the great Paul Robeson. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granatino, Adam Coley, Dwayne Gladden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com.